We're continuing now in the Gospel of Matthew, and if you've been with us for a while, you know we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a while. If, if you're new to us or to IBCD, uh, we will continue to be in the Gospel of Matthew for a while. But we are in chapter 16 at the moment, and so if you like to follow along, some folks like to follow along, we're in chapter 16 starting at verse 13. Before we get into that, though, one of the things that, that I know we've all been involved in at some point in our life, and it's usually not a very pleasant time, is in times of arguing or conflict with people. And sometimes it's with people that we love, like an argument with your spouse. Sometimes it's with people that uh, you care about deeply, uh, like an argument within the church. Believe it or not, they happen now and then. They happen all the time. And... Uh, and then uh, you know, arguments, you know, with your colleagues at work and all that. And sometimes uh, you've probably been in this situation. Have you ever been in the situation, though, when the person has a, a, a point of view that you disagree with? And you have lots of different reasons why you disagree with it. But then your own point of view, or at least the point of view of the side that you find yourself on, you know that there's some flawed arguments in your own point of view. And when you're in this time of arguing, sometimes it's difficult because even though you strongly oppose where they're coming from, you know that your position really isn't all that strong either. And that becomes a difficult place because our human pride starts to get in the way. Now, if you're dealing with folks that there's a lot of trust between the two of you, you know, you can oftentimes get around a lot of the awkwardness just by saying, look, I know that what I, what I think about this or what I'm proposing about this situation isn't all perfect and 100%, but I have some serious problems with where you're coming from too. And usually if you're honest about your own situation, people are willing to be honest about theirs and you can start to come to, together. But usually what happens, or often what happens, is we get dug in with pride. And we don't want to admit that our argument is flawed, even though we know it is. And we are especially that way if the person we're talking with seems to be very dug in too. And, and then, and like in Germany here, the, the whole art of arguing is kind of a, a different level than anywhere I've ever been before. But, you know, like, you know, having to come up with your position and, and trying to find logic in sometimes very illogical ways, and you start going back and forth on this. And it's a hard situation. And I've often had to counsel, like married couples, for example, that the goal of arguing isn't to win. Because if you win, if one person wins, the other person feels like they've lost. And I often have to try and counsel people who are in this marriage situation. The goal is to come to a place where you both feel like you've won. You both feel like you've been heard and the situation isn't just one person dominating the other. Because that always creates resentment. When one person wins, the other one loses, there's resentment. And believe me, you will pay for that resentment later on. And so this is all frustrating and discouraging, especially when it happens within the places of the church or in very personal situations like your spouse or a close friend because it gets in the way of your own journey of faith because the scripture often talks about you need to be in reconciliation with one another. You need to be walking as closely as you can with one another. The Apostle Paul, who I think was sometimes a difficult character to get along with, he kind of qualifies it when he says, get along with others as much as it is up to you. You know, acknowledging that sometimes it's just not going to happen. Sin gets in the way, and it's just not going to happen. But what can sometimes happen is we get hung up on these arguments, and they go on. Sometimes they can go on for generations, and they can influence people for generations. And today's scripture is kind of an example of this because it concerns the apostle Peter. 
And in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a statement which has been the source of confusion and division within the church for centuries. And as you know, I'm kind of a history geek, and, and, I, and I take very seriously the, my, the, the, the history of the church and how it influences us today, how it influences me as an individual, how it influences you, how it influences the church. And I know some of you could care less about history. You know, you're just kind of in the moment. This is where we are. It doesn't matter where the past has been. But I find the past is an interesting way to kind of navigate to why we are here, why we are in the position we are today. And so when I talk about this today and I talk about, you know, I'm going to specifically talk about some Catholic beliefs and some non-Catholic beliefs, I want you to understand that I actually kind of consider myself in the history, the stream of history, which includes Catholicism up to the Reformation. And so I don't necessarily uh, want this to come across as us and them or me and them. Because sometimes people feel like when I mention specifically a, a teaching from a specific church, that I'm attacking that church. And I was like, well, I'm not necessarily attacking it. I'm just pointing out this is what they teach. This is the issue I have with that. And today's scripture is one of these because it has been consistently mistaught from both a Catholic view and from a non-Catholic view, in my humble opinion. And this is one of those sermons you can kind of take it or leave it because this isn't a salvation issue. But this is an issue that has affected the church for literally centuries. And so we're going to look at it today. So the passage we're looking at is Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. And we're going to go to 23. It says this. Now remember, Jesus has been at this point, and this is important to remember because of the way the gospel is set up. The, the previous chapters up to this point, Jesus has been dealing specifically with non-Jewish people. Matthew has kind of taken a, a, a bit of a loop, a bit of a detour, and he's gone through a couple chapters and incidents where Jesus is dealing with specifically people who are not Jews. And in this case, because the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is far away from Jewish territory. This is deep into Romanized and called Hellenized, which means Greek uh, influenced territory. Caesarea Philippi is kind of the ultimate in Roman Greek name. It's named after Caesar and it's named after Philip the Great, who was Alexander the Great's father. So Caesarea Philippi. You couldn't get more Gentile. So when Jesus comes to the reason of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
I think this is a very, this is a fascinating little passage in the scripture. And I think this passage deeply shapes Peter. Because on the one hand, he is so highly praised by Jesus, by the Messiah. And then on the other hand, he is so quickly dismissed. And not just dismissed, but told, he calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not, you are a stumbling block to me. You know, I have in mind the things of God but the things of men. And I don't think that it's a, a uh, coincidence that the gospel writer puts these two incidents right next to each other. I, I've told you before that the gospel writers, when they wrote their gospels, they wrote them with a purpose in mind. And I believe that, the, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all tell the same story and in the same way with, with the confession of faith followed up with the whole get thee behind me, Satan, uh, they all do it that way. And I think there's a reason for that is to help us understand some things about what Jesus is really saying to Peter about his role. And I think it also helps us to understand how to, how to look at the scripture and balance some of the things that Jesus has to say. And this becomes an important question because these statements, this statement here, this blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, is unique only to the gospel of Matthew. This, this part where Jesus kind of extrapolates out the role of Peter, where he says it, that, uh, that you are a rock. The word Peter is Petros, which means stone. And so when it says his name is Simon Peter, Jesus does this thing which you see often in the Old Testament where God would change the name of someone. Like he changed Abram to Abraham, and he changed, uh, probably most famously, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. And so these are the things that, that happen within the Scripture. And Jesus does the same thing. His name is Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. He changes his name to Peter because you are this rock. And he says, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is an important statement, and it's unique to Matthew. And again, it's followed up by the get thee behind me statement. So the question then is, what do we make of this? What do we make of this? Is Peter the rock, or is he Satan? And this is where you have to be careful, because as, as our, our tradition tends to say, we want to read the Bible literally. And I believe that too, but I think we should read the Bible as literally as possible. But there are times when the Bible is literally a metaphor. And so you have to be able to deal with that when the Bible is, is literally using hyperbole or literally meaning to be a metaphor. Because I don't think any of us would say that Peter is Satan. I don't think anyone reading the, the book of Acts would look through that and say, there's Satan at work. And yet this reference to him being the rock has changed the course of church history. And the way that it changed the course of church history is that this institution that comes into place called the papacy, or the, where you have the popes, the, the Catholic Church teaches that this is the verse, the, the idea that upon this rock I will build my church is justification for the idea that Peter was the first pope. And that assertion has led to a divergence in, in basically Catholicism and non-Catholic teaching, and it has shaped the church for centuries. So that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit today. So let's go through this passage a little bit more carefully. 
The passage of Matthew begins with Jesus asking this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Matthew, again, is unique. If you read this, you read this account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find that there is no contradictory statements, but there are sentences or there are phrases which one gospel includes and the other ones don't. And in this case, Matthew and Mark just say, I mean, Mark and Luke just say, who do people say I am? It's only Matthew that, that says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And we've talked about this before. We've talked about the idea that the title of the Son of Man is used most often in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's only used six times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not a widely, it's not a very commonly used title. But it's used as Jesus' own self-title. We don't see him use, uh, again, in the Luke passage, in the Mark passage, he just says, who do people say I am? In Matthew, he uses his self-title. Uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? And I think that's important to Matthew. Because a lot of folks point out that the Gospel of Matthew is likely written to kind of a, to more of a Jewish audience. Because there's a lot of references to the Old Testament. There's a lot of uh, allusions to the Old Testament that aren't explained. And if you don't come from a Jewish background, there's just parts of Matthew. You don't really get the depth of what he's talking about. Or if you don't know your Old Testament. And this title, Son of Man, is one of these. People have, have gone in circles and written books about and had their PhDs done on what does Jesus mean by the self-titled Son of Man because Jesus never explains it. He never says, this is why I call myself Son of Man. And you know, if you, on the surface, if you don't really understand it very well, it sounds like Jesus is denying his divinity. But if you understand that he's using the passage out of, out of Daniel... Where, he see, where the prophet sees this vision of one ascending to the throne and upon whom is given all authority to rule, uh, all authority uh, of the universe, then you realize, no, actually, Son of Man is Jesus embracing his divinity. It's a, it's a whole other sermon, and we won't get into it, but that's how he starts it out. And Peter, in his response, gives a unique response. He gives the richest, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the richest and most theological response. Most uh, the other two, Luke and Mark, just have Peter say, you are the Christ. But in Matthew, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, these phrases, uh, to them, to, to, to Matthew, to the Jewish mindset, this is making sense about Jesus' divinity and who he is actually among us. To non-Jews, like most of us, you read this, Son of the living God, it becomes actually confusing. And this, these passages have confused people over the years. Are you talking about Son of God like, like Perseus is the son of Zeus? What are we talking about here? And the Greeks struggled with these passages, and we do too, because of the way it's being phrased. And then, of course, Jesus responds, and we've already talked about this, this where he talks about, you know, you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. So what does he mean by this? Well, again, the Catholic Church will tell you that this is the establishment of the papacy, and Peter becomes the first pope. But this is just not historically accurate. It's just not part of history. It's just not right. And I know we kind of live in this world right now where alternative facts uh, can come in, and, and people can just sort of rewrite history and say it's true. But that's a dangerous game to play, and it's just not historically accurate. In the early church, what you had is you had bishops which is the word episkopos, which is also the term overseer, which is actually more what my job is instead of the term pastor. Pastor is very much shepherd, takes care of 
uh, people. In the, and the scripture talks about some are giving these different roles to teach, to be pastors, to be administrators. But the overseer is where we get the term elder from or, or episkopos, which is the word bishop. And back in the day, when you just had one church in the city, you had the bishop of Antioch, the bishop of Jerusalem, the bishop of Hippo, which was Augustine famously, and the bishop of, of Rome. And all these were just considered the bishops or the leaders of the churches in these cities. And in the early church, there was a movement that begins to take place after about 200 years of the church being formed. And right when Constantine, Constantine kind of comes into the picture, he's an emperor around 300, you see this push to make the bishop of Rome the ascending bishop for numerous reasons. One was, it was the church that was in the capital of the Roman Empire. So the Bishop of Rome had a certain amount of prestige. Also, during times of persecution, the church in Rome uh, did well. I mean, they suffered martyrdom at an extreme level. They, during times of plague, they would take people into their homes. The church in Rome accounted for itself and glorified Christ in its actions very well in the early church. And so there was, and, and then there's some other things going on, some political reasons, because Constantine didn't like Rome. He didn't like the city. Constantine was actually, his favorite city was Trier uh, in, Rome, in uh, Germany here. You can go visit Constantine's favorite city was Trier. He kind of grew up there. He loved Trier. He didn't like Rome. It was too hot, too political. And then he also decided he was going to move the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople, which he named after himself. And that, that's modern-day Istanbul. And by moving things to the east, he wanted to, to have more influence in the eastern part of the empire. And so there's a lot of political reasons for the church in Rome, especially the bishop in Rome, to try and push himself to the top. And we actually have documents, historic documents, of letters that were written by the other bishops, like the bishop of Jerusalem, the bishop of Antioch, the bishop of Lydia, all these different bishops who were against us. They're saying, listen, we're supposed to be working equally in Christ. We're not to have Christ, then someone over us, and then the churches. We're supposed to be working as one. But that doesn't happen. Historically, the church does rise up, a lot of political reasons, and the pope becomes established. But it's like 300 years after Christ. And actually, one of the titles for the pope to this very day is Bishop of Rome. That's part, if you look at all of his titles, that's one of them, the Bishop of Rome. And so this ascendancy then has this whole impact upon the church. And they'll tell you that Peter is the first pope. He wasn't. There are some traditions around the idea that Peter founded the church in Rome. There's no evidence of it at all. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, he never mentions that Peter had established it. It was probably just established by some other believers. We know that there are believers that Paul knew personally, like Priscilla and Aquila, who went to Rome and then were part of the church so we don't see Peter coming up in writings about the church in Rome until about 200 years after Christ. But then you have these non-Catholic arguments. And these arguments are really kind of based on the idea of trying to push against the idea of the Pope instead of really looking at what Jesus has to say. And one of the arguments you'll often hear is that when Peter is referred to as the rock by Jesus, Jesus uses the word petros, which is kind of a diminutive form of the word. And so he says, you are Peter, and he says Petros, but upon this rock, he says the word Petra, I'm going to build my church. And so people have tried to make a lot of the saying, well, he's saying to Peter, you're just a little stone, 
but upon this big rock of your confession that I am the Christ, I'm going to build the church. The problem with that is then you have these following verses about the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of the kingdom, what you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. What you bind up on earth will be bound in heaven. That doesn't really make sense to the idea that Peter's just kind of a, a little stone placed upon this rock of confession. It's where the argument is kind of slippery and not very strong. So what does this all mean then? Well, I think as we look at this passage, we have to understand how Jesus used language. Because as we've pointed out before, Jesus could be intentionally exaggerated in his language. It's called speaking with hyperbole. And Jesus could be intentionally metaphoric in his language. And when you look at Jesus saying, you are the rock upon which I'll build my church, and then a few verses later he calls him Satan, you have to kind of take those things together and realize Jesus isn't saying that Peter is Satan. I think we're, we're okay with that, that, that he's, he's speaking metaphorically about Peter. And he's speaking about what Peter is doing, getting in between Jesus' mission to die upon the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Peter's standing in between him and that mission. And Jesus is already has enough stress about this idea of actually being crucified. You know, we talked at the time in the garden, you know, he's sweating blood. He's saying, Father, if there's another way to get around this, you know, let's do that. You know, so for Jesus, he's already not looking forward to the cross with any kind of positive way. And for Peter to say, no, this will never happen, that is a temptation that Jesus would love to go down and say, you know what? You're right. And so he tells him, get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. And what he means by that is, you know, I could trip over your offer, which is done in, you think, in, in compassion and in strength, but it's going to get in the way of my mission. Get behind me. You're a stumbling block. You don't have in, thing, in mind the things of God because you can't understand the crucifixion, but the things of men. And in that same way, when he says, you know, you're going to be this rock, we have to kind of take that in the same way. Because Peter does go through his own crisis of faith, doesn't he? You know, he denies Christ three times. And he's not reinstated back into the stream of the church, into the, the path of God until the end of the Gospel of John, which to me is one of the most touching parts when Jesus asks him, do you love me? And there's this back and forth between Peter and Jesus. Do you love me, Lord? You know I do. But Jesus is using this higher form of the word love. Anyways, so what does this mean then? What do we make of this passage? Well, the Bible pretty much explains what Jesus means about Peter being the rock and holding the keys. Because... When you read the scriptures, you're going to find out that Peter is essential in so many ways to the early church. Peter is the first to preach after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter is the first to do a miracle. Silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, take up your mat and walk. Peter is the first. Peter, along with John, is the first to go to jail because of his faith. Peter is the first to speak to authorities about Christ. Peter is also the voice of authority for the early church. Remember, there's this couple that tries to sell a piece of land, and they claim all the money they gave to the church, and Peter calls them out on that lie, and they drop dead. And it says, and there was great fear because people realized God's not messing around. Peter is that voice of authority. But here's one thing that's very, very important, and it's all about the keys. You have to remember in the early church, this church struggled with the idea that Jesus as a Jewish Messiah 
had come for anyone else other than the Jews. This was, a, this was a struggle in the early church. Do you have to be circumcised physically before you can become a Christian? That was a big question on people's minds. Did Jesus come for anyone else other than the Jewish people? And who is the first one who witnesses the Holy Spirit descending upon non-Jews? It's Peter. He gets sent this vision from God. You know the story. There's like a blanket with a bunch of animals in it that are unclean. And he hears the word of the Lord saying, kill and eat. And Peter's first response is, you know, I, don't, I, I would never eat anything unclean, as a good Jewish boy would respond. And then he sees this vision three times, and then he receives the word from the Lord. Do not call something unclean that the Lord has said is clean. And then immediately after that, messengers come from this Roman centurion named Cornelius. And they come and they ask, they say, Cornelius is a God-fearing man. He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. But he, but he respects the God of Israel. Had this vision, said to come get Peter. And so he sent these servants to get Peter. And while he's there, an extraordinary thing happens. Something that we are just, we, we, we don't even think of as extraordinary anymore. And that is the Holy Spirit comes to these non-Jewish people. And the Holy Spirit manifests himself there. And there's all these, there's a, there's a speaking in tongues, there's all these other signs, because they needed that sign, they needed to see, does the Holy Spirit indeed come to the non-Jews? And then Peter goes back, and he is the one that speaks to the other disciples and the apostles and leaders of the church and says, I have witnessed this. I have witnessed this. And by his authority and by his word and by his witness, Peter unlocks the notion in the minds of the people leading the church that the Holy Spirit can indeed go to non-Jewish people. And I think most of us here benefit from that directly. Most of us don't have a heritage that goes back to Judaism. Some of you might, and that's awesome. I don't. There's, I don't have a heritage that, that traces back to any kind of Judaism. I am here as a direct beneficiary of the authority of Peter to unlock the notion that Christ also came for those who were non-Jews. And this is really what this is all about. Because remember, these before this passage... Matthew's been going through several incidents with the Gentiles. The lady that comes and asks for her daughter to have the demon cast out, and Jesus is pretty harsh with her. We've talked about that several times. And then eventually he comes around like, woman, you have great faith. Then he feeds the 4,000, know, which is kind of parallel to the feeding of the 5,000, but he's with Gentiles instead of with Jews. And then we have this story here. So it fits in that he's taught, the keys are to the places where the, where the early church didn't believe the Holy Spirit would go, which was to the Samaritans and to the people outside of Judah and into the Greek empires and to the Roman Empire and into all the earth. So I believe this is the best way to understand this passage. And if we can just back down from some of our, our ideas of these places where we have to dig in to try and prove or disprove and just look at what Jesus has to say and then see what happens in the, in the book of Acts, you'll see Peter is indeed a rock. But I think Peter had heard very often, too, that he was the rock, the rock, the rock. And I think that's why in, the, in his letter to 1 Peter, which we read during the, the reading of the New Testament, he also points out that you also are the living stones. And I want to close with this. 
You know, very often it's, it's a temptation in the church to just kind of look to it to be done by others. I know some of you kind of see me as the professional Christian. This is his job. And therefore, the burden of building the church is really upon the professional Christians. And that is a teaching which has been perpetuated by folks that like to have control, that like to have that place of feeling of importance, and like to include into that a certain amount of authority. But that's not the image of, of the biblical, that's not the biblical image of the church. The biblical image of the church says that upon the foundation which is Jesus Christ, and Jesus even says as much, you've got to remember when you read scriptures, you need to look at other places that Jesus uses the same examples. And when he talks about a rock, there's a famous one, he says, a person who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house upon a rock. Who is that rock? Who is the foundation of the church? It's Christ. The Apostle Paul makes this clear as well. He says, when you, whatever you build upon this foundation, be it out of the precious stones or gold or silver, or be it out of things that are passing like wood, hay, or stubble, whatever you build upon the rock is going to be tested. And whatever gets through the test, that becomes your reward. But the rock remains the rock. And he even says some people only get through by the skin of their teeth. Everything they built on will be wiped out because they, after they accepted Christ as Lord, they never really did anything with it. Or they built things upon that rock in a selfish way. And by building things selfishly or with the values that were other than the values of God, those things aren't going to pass when it comes to the test of the Lord, the fires of refinement. But they'll still be saved because you can't burn down the foundation. Jesus is the rock. But in a small way, we are all to be little Peters. You are to be the living stones. Peter very intentionally uses the picture of a temple. And that temple is built in his day by stone, stone stacked upon stone. He says, you are those stones. You make up the church. You are the temple. You can either be a pillar of faith, strong and true, or you could be some weak beam that's just barely holding up the roof, and who knows when that's going to collapse. But you, we, make up the church. We are those living stones. You who were once called uh, no people were called a people of God, and you are called also a royal priesthood. What does that mean? See, that word priest has all kinds of imagery and, and, and meaning to it. But what is meant by it in the scripture is you are someone who can unlock the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of fear that people have in their hearts when it comes to God. Because there's a lot of folks out there who believe some crazy things about God. Everything from he's an angry old man just waiting to squish him to everything's fine. And he's just, he's just Uncle Sugar up there. Everything's fine. Both those are equally ignorant. They're all leading to death. But you who know the truth, who have the words of the gospel in your heart, who understand at least the little bit that, that Ramesh shared with us in that passage, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Those of you who understand that can unlock those places of fear, those places of ignorance, those places of hopelessness, you have the key to introduce light into that darkness. You are also a living stone. You are also a little Peter who can build upon this rock 
something that lasts for eternity, even when your name is forgotten in the annuals of history and time, the legacy of one changed life is one which your name will be attached to. So speak like Peter. Be bold, but don't be... I had a guy one time say, there's a difference between being assertive and being asinine. Be bold, but speak the truth with humility. Speak the truth with love. That's what Peter tells us to do. He says, as you live as aliens in this world, always be prepared to give the answer for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. Unlock that fearful heart of the colleague that you work with or the family member that you have, someone who has these misconceptions about God. Have the boldness to say, you know what you believe about God in this thing isn't what the Bible has to say. Can I just share with you what the Bible has to say? And the Bible has to say that God so much loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you for this character that uh, is beloved in the scripture, sometimes uh, made fun of in sort of a lovable buffoon, other times deeply revered as the rock who, was, who lived up to his name. You know, he went from being uh, this person that, that kind of spoke before thinking and made big proclamations as to his stand of faith only to fail to being a guy that really was everything that you saw him to be. A leader, a compassionate leader, a humble leader who was the first in so many ways. And we thank you that his obedience to you and his courage to stand up to his own fellow disciples, some of whom didn't understand where Peter was coming from at all, that people who are even the non-Jews can receive the Holy Spirit of God and have unlocked into their lives eternal life and salvation and hope and joy and all the good things that can come by knowing you. And Lord, help us to also be a little bit of Peter, to be that kind of person that is willing just to speak with humility but with passion about the hope that we have in Christ and to unlock those doors of darkness and ignorance and fear so that light can come in and lives can be changed. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.